Hello everybody and thank you for tuning into the Federals Files. Today we will be covering Federals number 21. It is titled Other Defects of the Present Confederation. It is written by Alexander Hamilton, uh, written on December 12, 1787. Topics included is a consumption tax, also known as a sales tax, as a security against tax oppression, as well as errors of tax quotas. And also the inability of the uh, union to enforce the law. That's another one. It's a little bit more, uh, it's in the beginning. It's not as elaborate. So in this paper, Hamilton confronts the next palpable defect of the existing confederation having no powers to exact uh, obedience or punish disobedience to their resolutions. There is no delegation of authority to the current National Council to use force against delinquent members, and there's also no court system established that helps to enforce those laws. And this is also because uh, the, the point was the anti-federalist or the dissenters were, oh, we didn't want the federal government to have power. Uh, you know, some people that I guess you would call libertarians nowadays, they... They fear the federal government. They would be afraid of the federal government being able to enforce laws. They'd much rather have them enforced by the state, I guess. That's more their view. Limited government, small government. The only problem with that is is when the state starts to be derelict in their duty and they start to impose themselves illegally and violate the federal constitution, then you would actually need the federal government to step in. And that's the whole point that Hamilton is making in the beginning of this paper here. So he starts off by stating, and I quote, The United States is now composed having no have no powers to exact obedience or punish disobedience to their resolutions, either by pecutionary uh, mulks, by a suspension or divestiture of privileges, or by any other constitutional mode. There is no express delegation of authority to them to use force against delinquent members, end quote. Here, here what he's pretty much saying is exactly what I started with. There is no power in the Constitution at this point, or, or the Articles of Confederation. There is no power in the Articles of Confederation to for the federal government to enforce any of the laws that are in the uh, Articles of Confederation. Or hold anyone to a standard, hold any state government to a standard. So Hamilton continues... And I quote, and if such a right should be ascribed to the federal head as resulting from the nature of the social compact between the states, it must be by inference and construction in the face of that part of the second article by which it is declared that each state shall retain every power, jurisdiction, and right not expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. End quote. So here what he's doing is he is referencing the Articles of Confederation, the second article. And this is almost like a version of the Bill of Rights. It's almost like the Tenth Amendment, actually, stating that any of the rights that aren't listed in the Constitution are given to the people or the state government. It just says that each state shall retain every power, jurisdiction, and right not expressly delegated to the United States and Congress assembled. Pretty much everything that's not in this Articles of Confederation is given to the state that's that's now their, you know, their jurisdiction or their power or to the people. But this one's actually interesting. It doesn't say anything about the people. So the Bill of Rights, the Tenth Amendment, is actually a better construction of this second article here. And uh, additionally to that, what he's saying is there's nothing even said that the, the Congress has the power to do any of these things except for this second article. And you have to infer that from the information given. It has to just, that has to be your um, interpretation of it. And it might not even actually be something that you can really 
debate for or in favor of an illegal court. That's really what he's trying to say there. Now, in other words, the current Confederacy does not even have the powers to enforce its own laws under the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation only gives the power to enforce laws to the individual state governments, not the national government. So, like I said, it, I mean, the last couple papers were written about this, that the power of, under the Articles of Confederation, the power of the federal head only extended to the state governments. It did not extend to the people themselves. And that was one of the hugest, uh, one of the hugest disadvantages of the Articles of Confederation. So, he continues, and I quote, If we are unwilling to impair the force of this applauded provision, we shall be obliged to conclude that the United States afford the extraordinary spectacle of a government destitute even of the shadow of constitutional power to enforce the execution of its laws. It will appear from the specimens which have been cited that the American Confederation in this particular stands discriminated from every other institution of a similar kind and exhibits a new and unexampled phenomenon in the political world. End quote. So here, Hamilton's just pretty much going in on how the the Articles of Confederation are ineffective. He's just he's just saying we we may be the first ever cited government where we cannot do anything as a national head. <laughs> we essentially are are we can do nothing. Our powers don't extend to anything at all because the state governments can pretty much just tell us to go screw whenever they want to. Uh, therefore. The states can usurp their powers and trample on the liberty of the national government and the, and, and the people as well. And that's more important. It, it can usurp their, their powers and they can trample on the liberty of the people as well as the national government. And the national government then, uh, you know, in result has no power to correct any of these encroachments. And he states this below, and I quote, Without a guarantee, the assistance to be derived from the Union is in repelling those domestic dangers which may sometimes threaten the existence of the state constitutions must be renounced. Usurpation may rear its crest in each state and trample upon the liberties of the people while the national government could legally do nothing more than behold its encroachments with indignation and regret. End quote. So, what he's saying here is... Like I said, they have no power to stop the state governments from encroaching on the rights of their citizens. That's the good part about having a federal government in in a general sense. Uh, and having that Bill of Rights and that Constitution is... Whenever you, you meet anybody that is uh, on the conservative side or of the right, one of the first things that they say... I mean, a lot of them, if they're on the right, they'll trash the Republican politicians because they know a lot of them are establishment clowns, hacks... Uh, but, but the one, the other thing they'll always say is, you know, they're trampling on the constitution, they're killing the constitution, you know, they're using it like it's toilet paper. When they talk about politicians in general, usually the left, they'll talk about Democrats that way. But that is really the point. If we did not have the federal constitution, uh, especially that bill of rights, if that was not provided and afforded to us, we would have some serious, uh, we would no longer, we would cease to exist as a country. There would be there would be no United States of America. There would be a totally different entity. We'd probably probably would be part of England or Spain or, or France, one of those imperialist nations at the time. Maybe even a Germany, uh, Japan. Maybe from World War II, if we even lasted that long. I don't. I don't know if we really uh, would have after the very after World War One, and we had the uh, stock market crash. I don't think we would have lasted after that. That's just my personal, or who knows, you wouldn't even, we wouldn't have been able to last through the Civil War, really. 
so forget it in the 18 in the 1860s we would have been done if it weren't for that the the people uh, they greatly appreciate the Constitution. They greatly appreciate the Bill of Rights that is within that Constitution because they know it affords them the protection of, against their state government. Uh, what we're seeing now here, in terms of police state, uh, in terms of spy states or spy countries spying, that is more the federal government. Police state tactics somewhat is the federal government as well. That is something that people are actually legitimately afraid of coming down the pipe from federal governments, uh, you know, increased taxation. That's another thing that people are actually worried about. But things that people, you know what, people are worried about the federal government infringing on their on their rights in terms of Second Amendment, First Amendment rights. Uh, but all I've seen so far, especially recently, it has been the state governments that have been infringing upon those rights much more than the federal government has. But that's also because it was a different administration, uh, I mean, even the Obama administration, he had a Congress that was right-leaning. I, th I believe most of the administration, I don't think he ever had a majority in the House as well as the Senate. So he really could not pass any type of gun reform. But you did not see, he would talk about passing gun reform. And that he was the best, you know what they used to say? They used to say Obama, he, he says he hates guns, but he's the best gun salesman in the country. <laughs> because whenever he would come out and say something, about gun reform, gun control, uh, you would get all these people going out to get their first gun or their first rifle or buy up more rifles and start stacking them at home and say that they uh, lost their all their guns in a boating accident and then, you know, digging up holes in their backyard, leaving them there, doing whatever they can, leaving them off-site uh, places that people don't know of. So what we're really worried about as conservatives always is the, the trampling of that constitution because... It really affords us the important rights that keep together this union and keep some sort of stability in the United States of America. Whereas the left doesn't really even, they don't even, they don't even look at the Constitution when they make decisions. They don't really care about the constitutionality of anything that they do. It's just, they go on a whim. And this is something, this is an article I'm going to have, uh, either I'm going to report on it this weekend or, or next week. Or maybe I already reported it because I'm, I'm pre-recording this. Uh, maybe I already reported it in the middle of the week. But the difference between between the conservatives and, and the liberals right now, and I'm not even talking about the you know typical liberal or the moderate, more just the new lib, what the new lib represents, people that are my age, the new liberal party. Uh, the, represent the difference is that the, con the conservatives believe in the Constitution. They don't believe in parties. They don't believe in people. Uh, maybe some of them do. But most of them don't. So if you're a conservative, you believe in certain God-given rights that are given to you, given in the uh, Bill of Rights. They're afforded in the Bill of Rights, but they are bestowed upon you by God. No other man can take them from you. No government can take them from you. Whereas, the liberals do not believe in those. They believe in people. They believe in party. That is why that they... they move themselves further and further away from religion. They don't believe in a God. They believe almost as if these politicians are their God. To them, that is their deity. That is their person on a pedestal, for lack of a better word. So, no matter what that person does, it does not matter if it violates the Constitution for them. Now, whereas, people that are in the conservative party, like myself, 
That's why I personally am not a huge fan of the NRA, because the NRA will lobby and they will actually work out gun control measures. And I'm not a fan of those gun control measures. So I will point I will point out whenever something is against the Constitution or against my personal constitutional beliefs or my personal principles that I have that I that I believe you know the country the way in which it should be run no matter who it is doesn't matter if it is uh, the pre if the guy's in the Republican Party it doesn't matter if he's in the Democrat Party it does not matter to me there's a lot of Republicans there's Ben Sass there's there's Mitt Romney I go hard on uh well there was John McCain there's a lot of Republican infighting that goes on because there's still those establishment uh swamp rats and then and it seems like there's a lot of them right now in the government and then there's the people on the conservative side that are actually mostly from the more more from the conservative media than anybody else. Those are the people that stand up for the conservative values and rights, probably almost more than anybody, with the exception of uh, the president and you know some of the senators and House representatives, Jim Jordan, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, a couple of them, uh, Rand Paul. There's a couple of them out there that still believe in constitutional values, but other than that, there really are not that many. So that's the difference. That is the uh, comparison between the left and the right is the left does not believe in any, they don't have any principles or values or constitutional beliefs. They're kind of willy-nilly. They just go with the flow of what the mainstream legacy media tells them to think, along with the marching orders of the DNC or whoever the Golden Calf Party member nominee is at that time for the Democrat Party. It is party over over rights, party over values, uh, party over conviction, whereas conservatives, uh, we believe in a set principles, a, a set of principles and values and beliefs based on our constitution. So to continue here, uh, he states, and I quote, without a guarantee, the ins the assistance to be derived from the Union in repelling those domestic dangers which may sometimes threaten the existence of the state constitutions must be renounced. Usurpation may rear its crest in each state and trample upon the liberties of the people while the national government could legally do nothing more than behold its encroachments with indignation and regret. So that's exactly what I already read. I just reread it. So uh, Hamilton cites... What he does next is he ends up citing the insurrection in Massachusetts, and then he kind of he begs the question, what would happen if the leader at that time in in that in that state was or or the the uh, the leader of the insurrection? It was the Shays Rebellion. Let's say it was Caesar Julius Caesar, or it was Oliver Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell, I looked him up, uh, English general who led England's Parliament armies to fight King Charles during the English Civil War. So I guess the Parliament at that time was fighting the king. The monarch was fighting the legislative branch of, uh, of England at that time. And they had their own, you know, kind of like how we had our own Continental Army. They had their own parliamentary army, and they were fighting his troops. So imagine if it was somebody like that that was willing to, to really uh, not be stopped, I guess you would say. And, and he, he states, and I quote, Who can predict what effect a despotism established in Massachusetts would have upon the liberties of New Hampshire or Rhode Island of Connecticut or New York? End quote. So really what he's saying here is imagine if the leader of the state of Massachusetts, and, and he's saying that he talk, talks about the Shays Rebellion. Shays Rebellion was, uh, I've, I've spoken about this before, but it was this sharecropper, his last name was Shay. Uh, he fought in the revolution, and at this point, 
him and the other people that were living in Massachusetts. I don't remember the exact area. I want to say it was it was near. It must have been near Springfield because uh, the taxes were too high. They were not happy. There was an insurrection. Then they went to the Springfield Armory, as in Springfield, as in the, the gun manufacturing company. They were around at that time. They w- they went and they tried to siege the uh, the the Springfield Armory to take up arms. But they were taken out by the militia. The state militia was able to quell the insurrection. So really what he's he's begging the question, imagine if that was Caesar or Cromwell and there was somebody that was able to take over the entire state of uh, Massachusetts. At this point, we wouldn't have had anything to handle them because of the way in which our Articles of Confederation is written up. We do not have the money even to uh, to quell the insurrection. We don't have the military funds in order to do so. And then when, once they took over the state of Massachusetts... This is a despotism, and and they're going to continue to take over New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, all the states that are around them at that point. So he continues, and I quote, It could be no impediment to reforms of of the state constitution by a majority of the people in a legal and peaceable mode. This right would remain undiminished. The guarantee could only operate against changes to be affected by violence towards the preventions of calamities of this kind. Too many checks cannot be provided. The peace of society and the stability of government depend absolutely on the efficacy of the of the precautions adopted on this head. So what he's really saying is the state constitutions, uh, what they want to do, the reformation of this Articles of Confederation to make it into this proposed conf- uh, constitution, what they really want to do is they don't want to take away the rights. They don't want to reform the state constitution, which is what the other side, his opposers are saying, we don't want to reform the state constitution. We just want to build up this new federal constitution so we can prevent these calamities, these disasters, these insurrections, these violent factions. That is all we want to do. And and that's that we want to guarantee as much tranquility and peace as possible. So then he, he continues, and I quote, Where the whole power of the government is in the hands of the people, there is the less pretense for the use of of violent remedies and partial or occasional distempers of the state, the natural cure for an ill administration in a popular or representative constitution is a change of men. A guarantee by the national authority would be as much levied against the usurpations of rulers as against affirmance and outrages of faction and sedition in the community. End quote. So this is this is awesome what he says here. This pretty much is saying that we are going to, by having the federal government in place and having that constitutional republic, we are going to ensure the people when there is a ruler or a uh, rather a governor or there's a, a legislature that is not abiding by the constitution, they are performing tyrannical acts or they're passing tyrannical legislation, we are going to protect you and the Democrat democratic process in order to vote that person out and get them out without having to go through violence or, or uh, you know, having insurrections to take that ruler or that person out. Instead, you can just vote them out. There's a guarantee of that stability in the system and that democratic process where they can now be voted out. So another error in the Articles of Confederation is the quotas imposed on the state contributions to the common treasury uh, imposed specific, specifically these constitutions on each individual state uh, and they, they are causing, at this time, they are causing glaring inequality and extreme oppression in certain states, especially the smaller ones, because 
there was a quota, let's say each state, they were just telling them a generalized number, or they were trying, the federal government was trying at this time to evaluate uh, the goods or, or rather the property and value. There's so many different factors to look at when you go to evaluate a property value or just evaluate a value of a country. You can look now, even nowadays, you can look at GDP, but then, okay, GDP looks great. But on top of that, there's many other factors that you have to look at. You have to look at the population, how, how you know, educated are they getting? What kind of a market, is it a market economy? Is it a free economy? Is it a free market? Um, or is it just an industrial economy that eventually will phase out once technology gets to a point where, uh, where now we can phase out all those jobs and the economy will crash? So there's so many different things to look at when you're looking at a value of a country. Uh, and, and the value of our country is good, great because of the free market. We have the stability in the system, the perceived st stability in the system. I don't know how much stability there is right now, but the perceived uh, stability in the system as well. When you have a system that is not stable and there is a constant infighting going on, a chance of the ruler or the president or you know representatives, government officials being overthrown or the government being overthrown, no one is going to invest in that in that country. But what he's trying to say here is there's so many different uh, factors that when you have taxation on certain states, it's really hard to evaluate it if you're going to go with a straight poll tax, which is just a tax on each person. A person just has to pay the tax or just the imposition by the federal government. The federal government walks into Rhode Island and they go, we believe you guys should have to pay $10,000 a year to the federal government. Because we say so, because you're, you have this much property, and we're assuming our assumption is, by mathematical equation, you guys have about this many people. We're assuming that you guys are going to be able to pay us $10,000 and have no issues with it. And then they can walk into Georgia, and they can under-evaluate them and say, hey, you guys you guys could probably pay us 8000 when Georgia can realistically afford to pay triple that. But So he, he goes into this in this part of the paper, and this is probably the most critical part. This is a, This paper, in terms of... The principle of indirect taxation is, is very, very significant. So he continues, and I quote, Those who have been accustomed to contemplate the circumstances which produce and constitute national wealth must be satisfied that there is no common standard or barometer by which the degrees of it can be ascertained. Uh, neither the value of lands nor the number of people which have been successively proposed as the rule of the state contributions has any pretense to being a just representative, end quote. So that's exactly what I was saying. I was saying that the, the amount of people, the value of your land, how big your land is, that cannot be, that cannot be the determining factor on how much of your state has to contribute. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Then he continues, and I quote, let Virginia be contrasted with North Carolina, Pennsylvania, with Connecticut, or Maryland, with New Jersey, and we shall be convinced that the respective abilities of those states in relation to revenue bear little or no analogy to their comparative stock in lands or to their comparative population. The p position may be equally illustrated by a similar process between the counties of the same state. No man who is acquainted with the state of New York will doubt that the active wealth of King's County bears a much greater population of that of Montgomery than it would appear to be if we should take either the total value of the lands or the total 
number of the people as a criterion, end quote. So here what he's, he's saying, you can put you can put this imposition based on people uh, as well as value of land. And you're going to find in theory, oh, it sounds great. But then in action, it is an erroneous principle and it does not work. You know, try comparing North Carolina and, and, and uh, Pennsylvania or Virginia and Connecticut or Maryland and New Jersey. It just does not add up that way. There is no type of algorithm that you can use to add up for how using property value as well as people uh, and use that in order to push an imposition or a tax on a state. Now, Hamilton pleads that to uh, ascertain the prop proportion each state or territory should pay based on wealth of nations uh, depends on an infinite variety of factors, which is something I was explaining before. Hamilton explains the factors to determine and I quote, these are the factors, and I quote, situation, soil, climate, the nature of productions, the nature of the government, the genius of the citizens, the degree of information they possess, the state of commerce, of arts, and of industry, end quote. Then Hamilton continues, uh, and I quote, there can be no common measure of national wealth and of course no general or stationary rule by which the ability of a state to pay taxes can be determined the attempt, therefore, to regulate the contribution of the members of a confederacy by any such rule cannot fail to be productive of glaring inequality and extreme oppression, end quote. So here what he's saying is, you know, there's so many factors that you have to determine. And if you're going to go ahead and you're going to determine some sort of state for the whole state has to pay a certain tax, a certain number, you have to consider the situation, the soil, the climate, the nature of production, the nature of the government, the genius of the citizens, the degree of information they possess, the state of commerce, uh, of the arts, and as well as their industry. And that is just something that is not discernible. It, it is impossible to ascertain all of those facts, especially with the technology that they had at that point, which they really did not have any. I mean, a land assessor can walk in and say, I think this land is worth this much, and then the next guy can walk over and I think it's double that. <laughs> it's it's very it's a very subjective system, which is why Hamilton believed that it could be oppressive and it can have glaring inequality. So he continues, uh, and I quote: "This inequality would of itself be sufficient in America to work the eventual destruction of the Union if any mode of enforcing a compliance with its requisitions could be devised. The suffering states would not long consent to remain associated upon a principle which distributes." the public burdens with so unequal a hand and which was calculated to impoverish and oppress the citizens of some states, while those of others would scarcely be conscious of the small proportion of the weight they were required to sustain. This, however, is an evil inseparable from the principle of quotas and requisitions, end quote. So this evil is inseparable. If you have quotas and requisitions, they will always have this where it will oppress states that can't pay this 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 imposition by the government, this taxation by the government, and then the states that can pay it easily when it's really, really low, they're going to make off and they're going to sail into the sunset, and then the, some of the states are going to get screwed. And then you can't, you can't expect these states to all feel like, you know, it's a fair system, there's not going to be some sort of animosity or jealousy towards other state uh, governments which is that's what he's getting at. Now, Hamilton's remedy, uh, which has been actually discussed in former papers, but I think here he, he elaborates uh, heavily deep into it more than he ever has uh, in the former papers. And in general, he says, all duties shall be on articles of consumption. 
And and when you say articles of consumption, duties, what are you, what are you talking about? Excesses, uh, imposts, these are all words that are used and they are tantamount to tax, taxation. So what he's saying here is articles of consumption, he's pretty much just saying there should be a sales tax, essentially. And that's that's how we're going to pay uh, all the federal governments. Well, through that, we'll, we'll collect enough revenue to pay all the entire budget for the federal government, essentially. That's what he's trying to say. So then he continues, and I quote, There is no method of steering clear of this inconvenience, but by authorizing the national government to raise its own revenues in its own way. Imposed excess excises and in general all duties upon articles of consumption may be compared to a fluid which will in time find its level with the means of paying them the amount to be contributed by each citizen will in a degree be at his own option and can be regulated by an attention to his resources the rich may be extravagant the poor can be frugal and private oppression may always be avoided by a judicious selection of objects proper for such impositions, end quote. So here what he's saying is you get the best of both, both worlds because articles of consumption, it's the most fair process that, that he can possibly think of because if you're going to say, hey, um, let's say textiles. Textiles are going to be taxed at 10% uh, on the border when they come in, and that's how the federal government is going to collect the taxation now, when you bring it to the to the vendor, the person that's selling it, the merchant, the merchant class that would sell it, when they when you go to buy that tax is already to begin with, it's already built in, and then you know what the tax is. So if you are someone that is lower class, you don't have the money to pay that taxation. You're not going to pay that taxation. You just won't buy uh, these articles of consumption. And then the the larger the the richer will just buy more and more. So it's the smartest way really to do it because if you want to avoid the tax, you just don't buy a bunch of extra stuff. You kind of just buy what you need to get by. And it's also fair because there's no imposition that is oppressive. There's not it's it's the fairest system because you don't have one class of people paying a higher percentage to make up for the other class of people. Everyone across the board just pays the same, and that's how it would work. And it's also in, it's it's a voluntary tax. It's not like, for example, I live in New Jersey. The state tax here, uh, the sales tax is like six point six two five percent. Certain items are not taxed. Prepared food is taxed at that rate, but non-prepared food isn't. Uh, clothes are not taxed at all. There's certain things that are taxed and aren't taxed through the state the state sales tax, which I think I think sales tax is much more effective than a property tax. That's just me personally. And and so the property tax in this state is outrageous. It's the highest on average throughout the entire country. There's people that they get work done on their house. They'll get a pool put in the backyard. They'll do they'll do all these things that raises the property tax. So you can be the person that doesn't get permits on anything, and you can have all this work done on your house, and you can be paying three thousand dollars less than somebody else. I don't understand how because because you know your the value that they rank your land your land as well as the house that you live in is worth this much. They they assume by how big your house is how much of the public how much of the public uh, amenities you will use. Uh, oh, you're going to use this much water. We're, we're assuming you're going to use this much water. Uh, you know, your garbage is going to be this much. The pickup's going to be this much. So we're just going to throw this stamp on it. This property tax is going to be this much. And also when you, you don't really see that property tax because it's included in your mortgage. 
uh, payment. You don't see it as much as you would a sales tax. So I think a lot of people kind of grow weak to it and they're not as aware and they're kind of um, passive in paying that tax really, which I'm not, so that's why I'm not a huge fan of the property tax, especially in this state, because it's so outrageously high. Uh, you know, you, you'll be paying if you just want a regular house, you'll be paying, you know, nine, 10 grand, and just a normal, if you want a three bedroom, uh, two bathroom, depending on where you live, something that's around, you know, 1500 to 2000 square feet, you'll be paying around nine, 9,000 for it which is outrageous that that adds, I mean, if you really do the math on that, it adds like $800 to your, uh, to your every monthly payment of your mortgage. It's an extra 800 bucks on top of everything else that you have to pay for your water, your, you know, your gas, your electric. So yeah, so then he continues and I quote, if inequality should arise in some states from duties on particular objects, these will in all probability be counterbalanced by proportional inequalities in other states from the duties on other objects, end quote. So I guess maybe some states in the north would need more clothes. Uh, so they would have, let's say they, they would uh, they would have a higher, well, they wouldn't have a higher tax. The tax across the board would be the same, but they would pay more into the tax on textiles. Whereas down south where it's hotter and guys are constantly working outside of sharecroppers, they're going to need more water. And let's say there's some sort of a water tax or something like that, which there probably wasn't at that time, but I can't really think of anything else. People down south would get taxed. Well, yeah, they would get taxed that extra, maybe some sort of fertilizer, which they probably didn't have at that time. So I can't really think about it. Maybe um, mulch for like cow manure, they'd get taxed higher. So it really balances itself out from what he's trying to explain. And then additionally, uh, the private oppression may always be avoided by judicious selection of objects proper for such impositions. Meaning, you know, if, 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 one, if one class of people is being oppressed because they buy a certain product and that certain product is, is higher, then the government has the power to kind of switch the imposition from this to this or try to even it out across the system. Now, like you said, the rich may be extravagant and the poor can be frugal. And then he states, and I quote, It is a signal advantage of taxes on articles of consumption that they contain in their own nature security against excess. They prescribe their own limit, which cannot be exceeded without defeating the end proposed. That is an extension of the revenue. End quote. So what he's saying is the end that is proposed by the federal government, the reason for having these taxes is to gain revenue to bring together revenue and the mo most importantly that is the most that is the most important factor so if the safeguard in having in in the meaning of trying to have that revenue they were so smart they were able to figure out basic economics which which regular americans today have no idea how it even works they were saying the main reason for these taxes is to gain this revenue so that in and of itself protects it in excess. You can't go really high with taxation. You can't make the tax on something 75%. No one will buy it. And in result, you will gain zero revenue. You won't get anything. So you need to actually keep it at a reasonable number or a lower rate in order to gain more and more revenue. When, when the Trump taxes came out originally, individual tax income, they brought in more money, even though the individual tax was lower. So they were they were they were saying okay our our middle our our middle class taxation went from 28% to 24%. And the middle class makes up most of the working class, I mean most of just the taxpayers, individual taxpayers in the country in general. 
So that's why I'm using them for the example. So you're looking at a 4% tax cut, but you guys are actually bringing in more money in the federal government than ever before through individual uh, taxpayers. And before this whole coronavirus thing, through businesses, they were bringing you, you went from a 38 to a 21% tax through businesses. They were bringing almost the exact same in, but the real difference is they're making it up in the, in the individual income revenue, which is insane. So that's really what he's alluding to here. And then Hamilton feared a direct tax on land and property because difficulties make it impracticable in terms of valuation of that land. Additionally, the cost of authorizing an evaluation is another formidable object that, uh, but Hamilton implores a fixed rule on the branch of taxation in general because no limits as it relates to government discretion with taxation is a fast track to oppression. This is what I think is very interesting because he says that, but he has said before, I think he says it later, that there there must be unlimited power in taxation for the federal government in terms of the tariffs or that's what I'm calling imposts and... and uh, excesses or whatever whatever excises excises is it's taxation on exports and then imposts is taxation on Im imports coming in and they're also just known as tariffs that's what we call them today but then he'll also say hey we know the federal government should have the unlimited power of taxation which is kind of i mean at that time it makes sense what he's saying though because what he's saying those are the only two ways that you could tax if you're the federal government there wasn't this this uh, income tax that's going on today where they're just taking most of your paycheck from uh, with with the state tax on top of the on top of the federal tax and then you got the social security the medicare medicaid tax you're paying at least like 30% if you're a middle class worker you're paying at least 30% so you're you're taking 30% of your time when you're working you're just giving 30% of your working time just to you know just to the government whatever you make so that's really, it's interesting that he says that though, but in this paper he doesn't, in this paper he says, oh, but there should be a discretion on the taxation because if you go higher and higher, uh, because having no limits makes it oppressive eventually. So then he, he states, and I quote, and this is the most uh, significant part of the entire paper, it's a long one, uh, just bear with me. So he states, impositions of this kind usually fall under the denomination of indirect taxes and must for a long time constitute the chief part of the revenue raised in this country. Those of the direct kind, which principally relate to land and buildings, may admit of a rule of apportionment. Either the, land, the value of land or the number of people may serve as a standard. The state of agriculture and the populousness of, the, of a country have been considered as nearly connected with each other and as a rule for the purpose intended numbers in the view of simplicity and certainty are entitled to a preference in every country it is a herculean task to obtain a valuation of land land in a country imperfectly imperfectly settled and progressive in improvement the difficulties are increased almost to impracticability the expense of an accurate valuation is in all situations a formidable object a in a branch of taxation where no limits to the discretion of the government are to be found in the nature of things the establishment of a fixed rule not incompatible with the end may be attended with fewer inconveniences than to leave that discretion altogether at large so this is the the, the best the biggest part here is the very uh 
he says the expense of evaluation. So if you're going to evaluate land, it's the expense that's really going to kill you. And then on top of that, it's something that's subjective. So he's saying if you're going to do some sort of valuation by value of land, he said it should be apportioned as in, you know, let's say for every single square foot of land you own, you have to pay, you know, uh, one cent or something like that a year. It should just be straight across the board. There shouldn't It shouldn't be subjective where people walk in and you're going to get a different uh, apportionment from you're going to get a different evaluation from one guy than you are the other if if you are going to tax uh if you're going to tax a land like that or the populousness of the country and that would be like i guess so you would call it like a poll tax for how many people you have in this state let's say you got 100 people each per each person every year has to pay a dollar but this is the way the way that they looked at taxation was very interesting they looked at it as a very low rate it wasn't you know 20 25 percent of your income it was three percent on your income and then you got to pay tariffs on top of that which is just like a sales tax like i said and that's the most like i said the most ex significant part is he says the expense of an accurate valuation is in all situations a formidable object objection so it's just the valuation alone is a reason not even to do uh property taxes because like i said it is subjective you can kind of have one guy say it's this much another guy say it's a totally different number and it proves itself to be ineffective because of the different numbers and the different valuations the subjectiveness of it but then he continues in a branch of taxation where no limits to the to the discretion of the government are to be found in the nature of things the establishment of a fixed rule not compatible with the end may be attended with fewer inconveniences than to leave that discretion altogether at large so he's saying if we have a system well, there's no limits on the discretion of the government and how high they could say your taxation is. The the best the best bet is to have an established uh, fixed rule, like he was saying. You know, the, if you're having property value, do it. You know, one cent per square feet foot instead of having somebody just come in and make a subjective decision. And this would not be some having having that that discretion, that unlimited government discretion, would not be it would be incompatible uh, with the end. Or, or having that fixed rule would be much more compatible with the end, and having it the other way would be incompatible. And then he says, maybe it attended with fewer inconveniences than to leave that discretion altogether at large. So you're going to have fewer inconveniences if you have a set standard or a set rule, rather than completely leave it altogether and not do anything about it but it seems like from what he says is he does not really want a uh, land tax property tax number of people tax because it's hard to evaluate all of those things and to evaluate it it's expensive and that's why he would much rather just do the uh do the tariffs the imposts and the excises as well as the uh the sales tax so that's something that He'll go over more and more taxation. Uh, I hope I didn't confuse you because there's, there's a lot of uh, lot going on economically with that kind of stuff. Uh, so please, that will conclude this one. Please like, share, subscribe. Uh, drop the mic. Let people know about the podcast. At this point, it's, it's Friday. Uh, I hope everybody has a good weekend. I'll be coming out with a weekend special, I'm sure. Depending on the news that comes out, I'm sure I'll probably have one. So everybody... Uh, make sure you tune into the weekend special. Make sure you check out the other current events that I have put through, that I have uh, put up over the last couple of weeks. There's a lot of information in there. It is critical to the fight that we are in right now. Uh, Supreme Court stuff going on, all these 
all these affidavits, all this information with the election. Uh, then you, you can understand how certain things are unconstitutional. Like last week, I, I quoted Act 77 and showed that it was illegal by the Article 7, uh, or what is it, Article 7, Part like 14 of the Pennsylvania Constitution, how Act 77 in Pennsylvania was unconstitutional a year ago when they passed it through and their Supreme Court didn't do anything about it. And then our, our own federal court, our own Supreme Court didn't do anything about it. If you want to know all that information and, and a lot of people seem to be tuning into those videos much more because they're political, uh, rather than these where these are much more informational. Uh, if you want to tune into those, tune into those, they're very interesting. You'll get something that you're not getting in the mainstream media, uh, for sure. And, and you'll get, much more of rather than a talking point coming from like the, even even the Republican Party when when you watch if you watch a uh, a Carlson or if you watch a Hannity sometimes it can be a little bit vague because they kind of just they have these these long commercial breaks and then they have this individual come in they have these guests on the show and they speak very briefly and it's and everything is pretty much written up they know the questions beforehand so and, and it's quick snippets and if you're not really paying attention you don't get the entire story behind it. So you can actually debate it. You could debate it effectively against somebody else, and that's really the that's the that's the essence of this show. That's the most important part about it. Is I want to arm everybody. Not that, you know, don't arm anybody for violence. I want to arm everybody intellectually so they can debate the topics and they can debate the merits of uh, constitutional values and conservatism. So I greatly appreciate everybody for tuning in. Please like, share, subscribe, drop the mic on everybody. Uh, let them know about the podcast. Spread the word because I cannot. Uh, I cannot advertise. They do not allow me to. So everybody have a great weekend and take care.